6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 52. Last time we did it, we probably were a little um, crowded. I I think last time I um, spent a little too much time up front on Babylon, so that by the time we we you know we went through it pretty fast, I guess. Um, but uh, that brings us to chapter fifty-two. I think we finished Babylon last time, and Babylon was finished last time, never to rise again, as Jeremiah would present it. And a concept not free of controversy, but one that I think is important for us to understand to get the rest in perspective. Now, in a sense, the book of Jeremiah is already finished with the 51 chapters. There is a 52nd chapter, the scribe of which we don't know. It's uh, classically, canonically part of the book of Jeremiah. Uh, it appears to be something that a scribe added. There, there's a, a number of reasons that... Uh, uh, in any case, we're not sure. It's, it's like an appendix to the book. What it includes is essentially the material that you'll also find in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 18 through 30, and chapter tw uh, 25 up through, uh, well, actually, uh, through chapter 25, verse 30. Material in 2 Kings 24 and 25 is herein summarized. There's a few details added. There's a few things that are slightly different. There are some things that might appear to be discrepancies, but they're not really when you get in the nits and nats of it. And I'm not going to weary you with that particularly. Uh, we, it's also material that won't be new to you. We've, recovered, we've covered the actual historical context several times here. It appears that this uh, historical uh, appendix is really here to demonstrate the fulfillment of God's prophecies. The context, in a sense, is, is that we've had now the conclusion of 40-year 40 40 ministry by Jeremiah, in which he, in the more recent parts, had predicted that um, Zedekiah would be defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, that Judah would fall to Babylon. Now, the reason it's here is that something you and I tend to forget, or is not focused on, is that the false prophets were preaching the opposite. Jeremiah, throughout his whole ministry, was uh, in effect harassed by large groups of false prophets, um, you know, emphasizing the opposite of what uh, Jeremiah was predicting. The false prophets were predicting in detailed, articulate terms that to Ze King Zedekiah, that he would be victorious over King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's not hard for us to imagine the style of their message, the false prophets. Gee, God has never abandoned Israel, that in the last hour that God will put to confusion her enemies, and God will stand by his people, that uh, they will not be abandoned, and so forth. You can fill in the blanks. Very appealing message. 
They could easily draw on many analogies in Israel's history. The particular one that surfaces is Hezekiah. When Isaiah comforted Hezekiah and pointed out that, hey, relax, it's going to be okay, and it was, God did, in fact, provide his salvation of their predicament at the end there. So the false prophets could sell that message. And how, how dangerous it is to accept at face value an appealing message. We are in the same predicament. The United States, you know, we, we echo back to the context of the country in years past. Well, 40 years ago, when we were faced with a very, very difficult war, global war, that war was kind of somehow the good guys and bad guys had a little more clarity. Somehow one could easily emotionally identify with the challenge of that war. And indeed, God did see us through and many things were accomplished. We take for granted that the United States is, uh, has, is, has the benefit of God's protection. And yet, as we stand back and look at ourselves biblically, what a naive proposition that is. Take a good look at the United States, and uh, uh, the book of Jeremiah fits us pretty well. That God, indeed, may well raise our enemies up to be a form of judgment because of our conduct, our, uh, the ungodly nature of our country spiritually, the ungodly nature of our country administratively, where we ban his acknowledgment through, in, in all of our activities. Uh, where, the, where the nation enforces a religion called secular humanism upon us and uh, proscribes, that is, prohibits the gospel of Christ from being heard in anything but very private contexts. Um, scary. And uh, in that vein, too, our nation's in trouble ecclesiastically. You look throughout the land and in all areas, we find denominations of all shapes and sizes. Indeed, even the so-called charismatics or fundamentalists are uh, turning apostate, clinging to the cliches you'll hear around more and more as dominion theology, kingdom theology. And it's fascinating that these heresies are being re are repackaged heresies of the first and second century. And uh, so on the one hand, you get alarmed and concerned with the gross immorality and the confusion and the carnalism of our professional ecclesiastics on the one hand, and yet in the deep roots we also see apostasy emerging in very peculiar forms. And uh, so how parallel it is, how interesting it is. Anyway, get back to Jeremiah, chapter 52. Let's just jump in and take as it comes. Chapter 52, verse 1. Zedekiah was one and twenty uh, years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Don't be confused. This is not the Jeremiah that's the author of the book. The word Jeremiah was a, apparently a, you know, a common name, and this is a different Jeremiah. Again, uh, a small point. He is the brother of Jehoiahaz and Jehoiakim, and therefore a, a son of uh, Josiah, and, uh, the, um, uh, and, and, and thus uh, an heir to the throne. He did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. So Zedekiah was uh, not a winner. Verse 3, 4, Through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah, till he had cast them out of his presence, out from his presence, that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So Zedekiah is here credited with ignoring uh, Jeremiah and listening to the false prophets. And verse 4 is a key verse. And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, 
in the tenth day of the month that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came, he and all his army, against Jerusalem and camped against it and built forts against it round about. So the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. That's uh, a long time, a couple of years. Almost almost two years, actually a little less. Now, the fall of Jerusalem, key point in biblical history. The fall of Jerusalem is recorded four times in the Old Testament. We'll find it in 2 Kings 25, 2 Chronicles 36, Jeremiah 39, and here in Jeremiah 52. Four times. Four is the number of the world, appears. Four corners of the earth, those kinds of expressions. Symbolically, it seems to suggest that. And indeed, we have the fall of Jerusalem detailed on four occasions in the Old Testament. A very, very key event in, in God demonstrating his judgment. We're going to get back to chronology here in a little bit, so I won't get into it right here. Save to say that um, arguments can be advanced that the relief from captivity under Cyrus was 70 years to the day. And that's by comparing this and, and a passage in, I believe it's Habakkuk. And that's complicated. I won't go through all that because it's uh, technical. But the point is you can demonstrate that there was a 70-year fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy to the very day. Okay, verse 6. And in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the famine was great in the city, so that there was no bread for the people of the land. That's glib words. Hard for you and I to relate to this. The city was under siege. It was sealed off. There was famine. There was cannibalism. There was the anguish of the mothers watching their children starve. There was pestilence and disease. It was a tough time. There was no bread for the people of the land. Verse 7. Then the city was broken up, and all the men of the war fled, and went forth out of the city by night, by the way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden. Now the Chaldeans were by the city round about, and they went by the way of the Arabah. And the army of the Chaldeans pursued after the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. We've read this before, if you remember Jeremiah, I think it was 39, wherever. Then they took the king and carried him up unto the king of Babylon at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, where he gave judgment upon him. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar had his command post at Riblah, some, some distance obviously from the actual siege going on in Jerusalem. And here's where, again, we have recorded where Zedekiah is, is judged. Verse 10, the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He slew also all the princes of Judah in Riblah, and he put out the eyes of Zedekiah. The king of Babylon bound him in chains and carried him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. So this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Zedekiah would not see the Babylonian captivity even though he would die there. Strange irony, literalness in prophecy. Zedekiah did not see Babylon. He was blinded, yet he died there in chains. Now in the fifth month, in the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, who served the king of Babylon unto Jerusalem and burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and all the houses of the great men, burned he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans that were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem round about. Their obvious intention was to destroy it so it would never be rebuilt again. Nebuchadnezzar had endured three rebellions. He had enough of this. This time, it's over. Burns it to the ground. 
Verse 15, the Nimbi and the captain of the guard, carried away captain, captive certain of the poor people and the residue of the people who remained in the city and those who fell away, who fell to the king of Babylon and the rest of the multitude. But Nebuzaradan, the, ca the captain of the guard, left certain of the poor of the land for vine dressers and for farmers. Remember, that was also a prophecy. God said that's what would happen. That's what he did. I'm sure Nebuzaradan didn't know he was fulfilling prophecy, but you may recall earlier in that book where that was prophesied and we discussed it at that time. Verse 17, also the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the bases and the bronze sea that was in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke and carried all the bronze of them to Babylon. The cauldrons also, and the shovels, and the snuffers, and the bowls, and the spoons, and all the vessels of bronze with which they ministered, took they away. And the basins, and the firepans, and the bowls, and the cauldrons, and the lampstands, and the spoons, and the cups, that which was of gold in gold, that which was of silver in silver, took the captain of the guard away. The two pillars, one sea and one tw and twelve bronze bulls that were under the bases, which King Solomon had made in the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was without weight. And concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was eighteen cubits, and a band of twelve cubits did compass it, and the thickness was four fingers, it was hollow. And the capital of bronze, as you know, the top of bronze, was upon it, and the height of one capital was five cubits, with network and pomegranates upon the capitals round about, and all of bronze. The second pillar also, and the pomegranates, were like unto these. These apparently are the two pillars, Yochan and Boaz, they had names, strength and counsel, that were part of the porch. And um, the symbolism of which uh, is another study that Nan and I are going to do on the Temple of God. These are provocative. They didn't carry, they didn't bear weight, these two bronze pillars. One of the things that's worth your study is to study the tabernacle. We've talked about that many, many times. It's also interesting that the temple is different than the tabernacle. It's very similar in its structure, and yet it includes some things the tabernacle didn't. And um, those turn out to be symbolically, typologically significant uh, in the New Testament context. And so that's a whole other study, but I, and I don't mean to distract this study here, but just to alert you to that, you might find that interesting, to do a comparison of the tabernacle and the temple, and, and uh, the, you'll discover, or we think we have discovered, we're trying to develop the details, uh, that there is a structure of the temple that becomes the structure of the believer in contrast to the structure of the unbeliever. There's the body, soul, and spirit. And if you do a board study on body, soul, spirit, heart, and mind, those words are glibly used by us, Lysopoli. In the scripture, they're very precisely used, and they mean some things that are a little different than you and I would normally perceive. We think of the mind as the brain. Well, that's not the way the scripture speaks of it. And uh, this whole idea of, of uh, loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, all our strength, those are different things. And the scripture... Uh, doesn't have a Freudian model of the conscious, subconscious, exactly. It has a different model. And the Holy Spirit has uh, diagrammed us, if you will, in the temple. And so there's a whole study that's worth doing, and we probably maybe we'll tackle that later this fall, on uh, that whole uh, issue, the temple of God, and the modeling of it. And uh, that's a, a side study. But in any case, moving on, verse 23, there were 90 and 6 pomegranates on the side, and all the pomegranates... And the network were about a hundred roundabout. Okay. Now, all of these things, by the way, are returned when they return. 
later on, this is this is all happening in chapter 52, Conquest of the Babylonians. Seventy years later, Cyrus the Persian frees them. And Ezra chapter 1 describes how all these things were had been cataloged and numbered and stored in the museum in Babylon, were now removed and sent back to with the captives, with the remnant that returns to uh, Jerusalem when they when they finally have the authority to rebuild the temple. So these things all, they weren't just, there's a lot of destruction going about, but many of these things were um, stored as artifacts in Nebuchadnezzar's museum. And when Cyrus released the Jews, they were, these things were very, the inventories were kept and they were ticked off and given to them and they come back. Verse 24, and the captain of the guard took Sarah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the door. He took also out of the city a eunuch who had charge of the men of war, the seven men of them who were near the king's person, who were found in the city, and the principal scribe of the host who mustered the people of the land, and the three score men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon smote them, put them to death in Riblah, in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive out of his own land. This is the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive in the seventh year, 3,000 Jews and three and twenty. In the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 832 persons. In the three and twentieth year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away the captain of the Jews 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. That doesn't sound like much, and that's there's a lot of scholastic discussion about these numbers. First of all, there are only the Jews and only the males. So that alone implies that there were lots more than mentioned here, but even so, the numbers are not that staggering. By the way, coming back when they released in their Cyrus, as I recall, there's only something like 37,000 that returned. So it's uh, not a huge bunch. Like, but again, there's a lot of discussion as to whether th these are just the records. When they took records of those that were carried away captive, it's not clear that these were all only the, the only captives. It's a there's a lot of scholastic discussion about that that I don't think bears any fruit to really go into. Verse 31, It came to pass in the seventh and thirtieth year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, in the twelfth month of the fifth of the five and twentieth day of the month, that evil Merodach, and that sounds like a strange name as it's rendered in the English. He probably was an evil guy, but that's actually Emil Marduk in the Babylonian records. Part is, is the question of transliteration. We take a a word in another language and, and try to translate it in English, they transliterate, that is, try to spell it the way it sounded. They weren't sure how it sounded. So um, evil uh, is not an adjective in the sense of describing his character. I'm not saying it doesn't fit. It's a, it's a name. And uh, Merodach is the Hebrewization of the Babylonian Mar, uh, Marduk. And so Emma uh, Marduk is just the name of the king of Babylon, who was um, either the son or this a son or two down from Nebuchadnezzar. In the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, and brought him forth out of prison, and spoke kindly unto him, and set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon, and changed his prison garments, and did continually eat bread before him all the days of his life. And for his diet there was a continual diet given him by the king of Babylon every day, a portion until the day of his death, all the days of his life, that is, of Jehoiachin's life. Now, a um, couple of things about this. Um, Emil Marduk, um, there is a Jewish tradition, this is not authenticated, but there is a tradition 
that during the period that Nebuchadnezzar was indisposed, now you may recall his career in the book of Daniel, there is a period of time which becomes the period of time of Daniel 4, where Nebuchadnezzar was at his peak, and uh, uh, Daniel had predicted to him that he was going to have a um, seven-year shutdown. He does. That is, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, in a fit of pride, takes credit for all his achievements, and God uh, hangs on him a strange form, it's called lycanthropy, where he has a mental derangement, and he literally acts like a beast and eats grass. It's a strange type of mental derangement. And this derangement lasts seven years. At the end of the seven years, he's miraculously healed, and Nebuchadnezzar recognizes this as a as a uh, uh, indication from God that indeed he is the God, and he puts up who he will and down who he will. And Nebuchadnezzar describes this whole issue in his own words in Daniel 4. Daniel 4 is a testimony by Nebuchadnezzar to the world. Well, there is a Jewish tradition that during that seven years that Nebuchadnezzar, in effect, was, what shall I say, on medical leave, where he was, uh, you know, confined. And by the way, there's also a tradition that the person that took care of Nebuchadnezzar during those seven years was none other than our friend Daniel. Daniel was very uh, an interesting relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. They were sort of adversaries, uh, yet Nebuchadnezzar, bear in mind, was a young king, well, a young general that was promoted king when his dad died about the time that Nebuchadnezzar was a teenager in the court and interprets this dream. They have a very interesting relationship. And it's in fact um, years later, after Nebuchadnezzar is uh, long gone, Daniel's an old man and called by um, uh, Belshazzar, who was actually the, a son a couple of generations later, who was in charge of Babylon during the handwriting of the wall. And, and that, when you read that in Daniel 5, the fall of Babylon, you, when Daniel interprets the handwriting of the wall, before he does that, he really puts down the uh, grandson to you know your dad your grandfather he was the king you know he put up he put up he put down he put down. I mean, he, he he not you punk i mean that's sort of the way you get the feeling if you were doing a, a shooting script you could easily put that in today's vernacular without trying very hard in any case uh, nebuchadnezzar obviously has a very high feeling for i mean uh, daniel has a very high feeling for nebuchadnezzar in any case there is a jewish tradition that during the period of time that nebuchadnezzar was indisposed that um, Emil Marduk was in charge for a while, but there's also a tradition that he screwed up. He got caught doing something he shouldn't have, and he was put in prison for a while. While in prison, he gets acquainted with Jehoiah Chin. So later on, when he comes out, he gets out of that difficulty, and of course Nebuchadnezzar returns, but then finally dies, and he, Emil Marduk, is now in charge. He remembers his buddy in prison, Jehoiah Chin. So he doesn't free him, but he takes him out of prison and puts him on special rations and 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 gives him, you know, court because he is, after all, a king. He's in exile. He's in he's in prisoned. He's under arrest, but he's not abused. He's given rations. Now, here's what's interesting: that all that's just a tradition. We don't know if it's true, but we do know from cuneiform cuneiform writing tablets that were found, there are lists of the rations that Imam Marduk provided Jehoiachin. His daily diet and stuff is has been found, and it's you know, in other words, records that confirm that, which is kind of interesting, you know. And uh, it always bothers, it's always exciting to see that, and yet it's always disturbing. Why do we need cuneiform tablets to prove to us that, you know, the Bible's right? This, all this proves is that the tablets are correct, you know. But uh, uh, we sometimes look at it the other way. Right, no, okay, you got that, okay. So that's the book of Jeremiah. Now, we got something else that, that, that I, I think, before I go on, I got something else I'll share with you you might find interesting. But before, uh, before I do, uh, I'd like to deal with the book of Lamentations. It's not part of the book of Jeremiah. 
I'm not going to take you through it chapter by chapter. I think you'd find that rather lengthy. Um, furthermore, it is really stands on its own feet. So the five-chapter book that's sort of like an appendix to the book of Jeremiah is uh, has somewhat the quality of the Psalms. It's his lamentations. Now you say, gee, I thought the book of Jeremiah was pretty sorrowful in its own right. Well, the book of Lamentations is his outpouring. And uh, it makes sense, the more you understand Jeremiah, the more you'll get out of taking yourself through the book of Lamentations, where Jeremiah essentially mourns for Jerusalem. The poor guy, on the one hand, was faithful in his, in his, his office of a, as a prophet, and he, he told forth what God told him to tell forth, i.e. that um, Jerusalem was going to be judged for iniquity. On the other hand, Jeremiah was not a um, traitor. He was a patriot. He loved his country. He loved the city. His roots there, his emotional commitment to Judah was absolutely uncompromising. So he's in a tough spot. On the one hand, he has to tell it like it is. On the other hand, he weeps for what he knows is the inevitable mourning and anguish of the city. And the book of the Lamentations deals with that. You can, as you go through from your study in the book of Jeremiah, there's really very little I can add as you go through. There's one thing I'll point out, small point, but uh, I'll let you go through that. I will share with you one thing, though, that you can for your notes. You might find interesting. There's, there's some, the, the book of Lamentations, you can sit down and read it through and get a feeling for the soul of the man, this guy, he, as he weeps for uh, his, his people. But the, what you are not familiar with, or you couldn't, you'd have no way of perceiving, is the, what lies behind the English. In the Hebrew, it is composed almost like a symphony. It has a very unusual linguistic structure. Chap the first four chapters are an acrostic. Now, what an acrostic is, uh, the first, uh, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 4 consists of 22 verses each. And there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And each verse starts with the next letter. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.